Hey, you are listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich, and we are coming to you live via the podcast airwaves and the radios and the car stereos all over the nation. That music you're freaking here behind me right now is Jake and Rebecca Workman, everybody. Jake and Rebecca Workman. our mail tonight, a little bit of our mail sent in to us from folks all over this wonderful land, people who've taken the time to put pen to paper and tell us a little bit about themselves. Our first letter tonight comes from Adrian B. in Boys City, Oklahoma. Dear Sean, there's a guy in my mother's quilting group and he's the only man there. He's been in it several years. He is old, maybe 79 or 80 or something close to that. 
And he's been quilting for a long time, ever since his mother showed him how to put a quilt together. He tells me she taught him to do this because she never had any daughters. And the skill of quilting has to be passed down to somebody or it will die out in future generations. And I wonder if he's not correct because quilting is an old art form. So he's quilted a lot in his life, even though he is a rough-handed man who was married and had four kids and worked all his life either cattle or farming. It's pretty sad to think that these generations who knew such wonderful crafts like quilting are going to die out if we don't do something. So I've considered of doing something myself. I'm going to teach my own sons how to quilt. Even though I already have a daughter, I think it's good for a man to learn something somewhat feminine, even though my sons disagree. My oldest son told me he would rather die than have his friends know that he uses a needle and thread. And I told him that can be arranged. So maybe we'll start with cross-stitching or knitting or crocheting, and I'll just ease men to it. But I try to have us a quilt together by the end of this year. Kara Lott, Anderson, South Carolina. Dear Sean, I'm a lower Alabama girl, L.A. for short. Troy, to be exact. However, I've lived in South Carolina for the last 20 years. I love your podcast, and every Monday I listen You and I are on the treadmill together, working up a sweat. Last night in Anderson, South Carolina, we had a tornado. And I just thought you might like to know that you were there with us then, too. The storm last night caused Mom and Daddy to stay at my house unexpectedly. Trees were down on their road, and they weren't able to get home. How grateful I am to be nearby so they could stay with me. And I was even more grateful that the cable was out because that meant that we could sit in my den, candles lit, even though I did have power. And we listened to podcast episodes of Sean of the South. I was so happy not to listen to the news for once. I was so happy. Daddy was stretched out on the couch. Mama was in her chair and Rufus beside her. I sat with Rosie in my lap and we just listened to stories. It was the best evening. Even in the midst of a storm, there is something to be grateful for. I was reminded of that last night. Thank you, Sean. Your friend, Kara. Dear Kara, you have made my entire year. Thank you very, very much for writing that. Crystal Lindsay, Shreveport, Louisiana. My mother and I accidentally switched cell phones because our cell phones look almost identical. And immediately I started getting all sorts of her phone calls. And she started getting all sorts of mine, I guess. But because we know so many of the same people, I decided to start answering the phone doing an impression of my mother's voice. So I gossiped with all her friends the same way she would have gossiped. And I learned a lot of things I wish I wouldn't have. We went a whole two days like this before anybody caught on. And I thought I was pretty clever until I saw one of my own friends out in public. And she said, hey, did you know that your mom is answering your phone doing an impression of you? (laughs) So it turns out, Sean, devious minds think alike. We finally switched our phones back. Lord knows what my friends accidentally told my mother thinking that she was me. Because I know what her friends told me thinking I was her, your friend, Crystal Lindsay. Dear Crystal, as my mother used to say, 
I do not take part in gossip and will never take part in gossip. But there ain't no harm in listening. (laughs) This next letter comes from Mike somewhere in Alabama. John, a short note to follow up on losing my 16-year-old dachshund. And you gave advice to me, and the advice you gave me was to hug a puppy. I did that. I did that. And now I have a five-month-old named Arthur Radley, but we call him Boo. I picked him up, and he just melted my heart. My Abby, my late deceased dog Abby, would have loved him. So far, he has eaten 17 magazines, two pairs of Crocs, three grocery lists, and one computer charger cord. But man, we are so happy and in love with this little Tasmanian devil. Thank you for your advice. Dear Mike, my advice and a nickel won't even buy you a cup of coffee. So thank you for your letter. Denny Williams, Asheville, North Carolina. Sean, I'm looking at an open field outside Asheville, listening to your show on low volume. And my son right now is playing baseball with a few friends. It's not an official game. They aren't in any league. It's just sort of an impromptu thing with friends. They're using old base bags that they got from a garage sale on a cleared piece of land that my friends and I trimmed with weed whackers and lawnmowers. I'm watching them play a sport that is old as America itself, and they're doing it just for the fun of it. Red shirts against the blues. There are no cell phones, no iPads, no computers, no technology, no shoot 'em up video games, no nothing. Just bats, balls, gloves, bases, and a referee. It's life, and it's pure, and it's happening before my very eyes, and I just wanted to share it with you. Aaron Derricks, Avondale, Alabama. My first time ever trying to raise a kid was when I was 17 years old and I did my best with my limited resources, but I was a teenager and teenagers like me had no business trying to do what I was doing. I was uneducated and I was trying to rear a child on my own. I didn't think it was possible, but I'm here to tell you that it was because I did it. Today I am a GED grad with a life that I cannot complain about because it is perfect. My husband is awesome. My parents have supported me through the hardest times of my life. And my daughter just graduated college. And we are best friends, me and my daughter. And now that I am almost 40, get that, Sean, almost 40. And I just found out that I'm having another child. That's right, a second go-round at doing motherhood. And this time I am so scared, even more scared, I think, than the first time. But this time I'm also very excited because I know that my baby is going to have the wisdom and support of a big sister and a father and grandparents who love her. I want everyone to know that there is no such thing as a mistake. Cody Quail, Topeka, Kansas. My son and his friend rode from Topeka to Little Rock, Arkansas, and I was with them. 
I was riding in the back seat and there was a whole lot of laughing going on and a whole lot of jokes that were moderately inappropriate. I was trying not to be a protective father and nitpick them to death. I was trying to be very relaxed about the whole thing. So my son was driving and he saw blue lights behind him and he freaked out immediately because he's only 19 and he has never had a speeding ticket before. And even though my heart sank, I just kept my mouth shut. The cop was a woman, and she was, and I do mean this with all respect, absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> she leaned into my son's car window, and she was all business, and these two poor boys could not even remember their own names. They were tongue-tied and blushing, and when she wrote them the ticket, they drove away with stars in their eyes. And as soon as we got a little ways down the road, my son said, Dad, I hope you don't hold this against me, but I reckon I'm going to start speeding again just so she'll come back because she sure smelled good. <laughs> Amos Blackburn, Phillipsburg, Kansas. Sean, my grandmother makes pies that are worth dying for or worth living for, depending on how you look at it. And she used to make them for us every Sunday, every Sunday after church. But she's gotten sick recently, and she hadn't been able to do it. So my sister and me decided to learn her recipe. And we had her teach us how to do it over the phone, over FaceTime. Last Sunday, we were in the kitchen, and she was in bed across the street. We made huckleberry pie, and it was hard just finding huckleberries. They're not something you can just locate on the street corner like they once were in my granny's day. When we were finished, we served it to my grandmother in her bed, and she took one bite, and she made this, this really pained face and said, there's something really, really wrong here. Sean, as it turns out, we made a grave mistake. We used salt instead of sugar. <laughs> so anyhow, I knew there was something wrong. I knew we should have taken a taste of it before we served it. We'll give it another shot this Sunday, and I hope she gets better soon because I don't think the world can take any more huckleberry pies that my sister and I are producing. And that's letters from our listeners. We're going to have another tune here from Jake and Rebecca Workman, everybody. Jake and Rebecca Workman. In a distant canyon, hard to find, lies a man under a pine. Fallen leaves and snow hide his body, and the story he left behind. A broken down soul and a sharpened stone are all the things he's ever known. Burn 
was the full moon. September 24th had a full moon. It came and it rose clear above the surface of the water. The chocolate hatch bay. I went out and looked at it. And squint your eyes. You could see the orange moon, a large circular shape hanging above that water, which reflected its mirror-like image right back up at it. If you squinted your eyes, you saw the figure eight, the number eight made of orange moons. It's glorious. It's beautiful. Full moon causes people to act very differently than normal. Primal, primal feelings begin to rise from their belly. And they, they start to produce thoughts in the heads of people that are not common thoughts. And this is especially true if you were raised evangelical. <laughs> Autumn comes upon us at this time of year and it's a change. It's a beautiful change in the atmosphere the air gets crisp and the grass gets a little more stiff. It feels like the world is breathing at a different cadence than it normally does. The languid heat of the summer is gone, and for once in our lives, we can all stand on our porch without suffering severe and crippling dehydration. <laughs> this is the time of year when I love to read. I love to write this time of year. Reading and writing is a technology that has been with us largely unchanged since the Middle Ages. Autumn seasons are when I would get out to my porch as a child and I would read a book sitting on that porch swing that my family had. After my father died, reading became very important to me. It became everything to me. I read anything I could get my hands on, both good and questionable material. And for a Southern Baptist like myself, everything is questionable material. Such as the joke book, Dickie Bob's joke book, a thousand and one jokes that you should not tell during Sunday school. 
Reading is a beautiful, beautiful pastime for me. I can get lost in the pages of a fiction book, and I can exist in a world where there is no pain, only excitement. Even if it's a romance or a tragedy, I can feel nothing but excitement about what is going to be on the next page. I knew long ago that I wanted to be a maker of books. I wanted to produce the text on the pages. I loved to write. I was a lonely child. I was taller than my friends. I was chubbier than my friends. I had red hair and freckles, buckshot freckles across my pale white skin. I was awkward. I was, I was the kind of boy you could look at me and you knew instantly that I believed wholeheartedly in going back for seconds on the potluck lines at church. <laughs> I had long, skinny legs that were almost triple-jointed. They were so long. But my, my top half was a little bit heavy. I was not a confident boy. In fact, I was the exact opposite. I was an underconfident child. But when I wrote, when I wrote with a pen touching paper, I was not underconfident. I was all the things I wanted to be. I was all the things I envisioned myself as. I would sit in my room, that little desk my father had, had bought me, and I would press my pen into the paper so hard that it left text marks on the surface of my wooden desk. I would write stories about the Old West, about swashbuckling heroes, tales of the high seas. I loved to write. I was reading on the porch one day, one autumn day, as a 14-year-old boy, just after my father passed. It was a Boy's Life magazine. A Boy's Life magazine is an old magazine where you could... You could read about adventures and camping and how to make a chuck wagon kit out of a cardboard box and, 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 a, and an old bottle. It was, it was a magazine geared toward boys who had a taste for the outdoors and a taste for adventure. It was geared toward boys who might not ever get to enact upon an adventure like that. It was geared toward evangelicals <laughs> like myself. I loved Boys Life magazine and the articles therein. And the back of this magazine were advertisements for all sorts of things. X-ray glasses. If you had a black and white television, it, it, it sold something that guaranteed to convert your black and white television into color. I had a friend who ordered this kit to convert his brother's black and white television into color. My friend Dave. And in the mail came this large piece of pink, green, and yellow plastic that was translucent. And the directions were to tape this piece of plastic over the television. And so we watched an episode of I Love Lucy from behind this piece of plastic. Whenever Lucy was on the left side of the screen, she was pink, but when she was on the right side of the screen, she was yellow. It was not exactly magic. In the back of these magazines, they sold things like how to learn Spanish in only four hours or how to improve your pitching in baseball with, with this audiobook course. You know, send in your money, five easy payments of twenty four ninety five, and you'll get the whole set of records. 
And there was an advertisement in this magazine for an agency that was dedicated to pen pals. Pen pals. This was long before the age of the internet, before email, instant communication, and chat rooms, and social media, when you could do Google searches on anybody who struck your fancy, or you could do federal background checks for simply $10 at, at some website. This was a time when, in order to expand your knowledge about this universe, you had to read about it or to hear about it from somebody's, from somebody's own experience. And a pen pal offered this to me. I cut out that advertisement, and I wrote a letter to this agency requesting to be matched up with a pen pal, and I received a letter back in the mail with a short list of options. There were international pen pals in Germany and London and Czechoslovakia and China and Japan, people who spoke English. Or there was a list of people in the U.S. And I chose an address that was located in Atlanta, Georgia. The address was written right there, and next to the address was the name, which read B.B., and this letter I wrote to her was just a very, very non-committal letter. It was a letter that did not reveal too much about myself. I told her my age. I told her where I lived. I told her a little bit about me. And that was it. And a handful of days later, I got a letter back in the mail from B.B., marked Atlanta, Georgia. And I went upstairs to my bedroom to read it. I shut the door. The letter was a purplish envelope. And the text on the front of the letter, my name and my address, was written in purple ink. I opened the letter with my thumb and forefinger, ripped, out, ripped it out, and pulled out lined notebook paper, three pages, both written on the front and the back, covered in text. And all of the lowercase eyes on this, on this paper, they were dotted with little hearts. She was 15 years old, she told me. She liked dancing. She liked the Four Tops and the Temptations. She liked the television show Good Times. She liked things that most kids our age like. She was one year older than I was. And by the end of this letter, I had fallen in love with B.B. I thought about her all day. I laid in bed that night and I thought about B.B. I imagined who she was and what she might look like. And the more I thought about her, the more perfect she became. She, in my mind, she was tall and slender with long, blonde curls and blue eyes. And she was, she was intelligent and she was, she was not like me. She was not pathetic and a little bit overweight. She was not, she was not evangelical. She was Episcopal. Even though she never said she was Episcopal, I had in my mind that she was. Because Episcopals had a little more fun than people of my religious persuasion did. And I thought, I thought about her. I thought, maybe she's got her, her learner's permit or her driver's license already. Maybe she has friends who are, who are wild and, and know things about the world that I don't know. I wrote her a letter back, and I told her a little bit more about myself. I told her how much I liked Willie Nelson, and I told her how I liked 
to watch the Andy Griffith show. And I told her, I told her about me and the things that occupied my interest, my favorite books. I told her about Dickie Bob's 1001 jokes that you should not tell in Sunday school. I told her about my friends and about my uncle. I wrote words that were only meant for her eyes to see, and she was a complete stranger to me, but something about this was so honest that it was almost like I was writing to myself. And I checked the mailbox sometimes two, three times per day to see if she'd written me back. And I got a letter back from her, and, and on my, the I in my last name was dotted with a little heart. Oh, it was wonderful. I went up to my bedroom. I shut the door. I changed my clothes because this was a, a wonderful opportunity. You know, you had to be ready to read her letter. You had to, to dress, dress up. I opened it up, and I looked at the letter, and I read it twice. Lined paper written on both sides with purple ink, and it smelled a little bit like perfume. I, she told me about her life and about her parents' divorce how hard it was on her and how she she was not feeling as confident as she used to feel and I related to this and while I read it I realized these words they were only meant for me to see just like my words were only meant for her to see and it meant so much and I envisioned I envisioned her and I swimming on a beach somewhere off Costa Rica as adults our romance had had several years to bloom in my fantasy, and we were holding on to the fins, the dorsal fins of dolphins, while they pulled us through the, the emerald green waters of Costa Rica. And we were laughing with one another, and the sun was beating down upon us, giving us these brown tans. And all my baby fat had been lost, and my red hair had been bleached by the sun into a nice platinum blonde color. And we would sit on the beach in, in two rented chairs with an umbrella uh, poking above our heads, and I was reading books, and we were happy and confident and we were no longer those children who felt like the world was against us. I wrote her back and I was more honest with her than I'd been with anybody because her words made me want to be honest. She closed every letter with your forever friend, Bibi. Forever friend. I'd never had a forever friend before. I wrote her a letter about myself, told her about my father's early death. I told her about the way it made me feel. I told her how kids hadn't really known how to treat me after he died, and I told her how I felt like I had no friends. I told her how alone I felt. I'd never been this honest with anybody before in my life. And I signed it, and I was going to write at the very end, your forever friend, Sean Dietrich. But I could not bring myself to do it because I was a boy and she was a girl. And to say this to a girl was far too mushy. And I couldn't bring myself to be this mushy with a girl my own age, after all. And I didn't want her to get the wrong impression of me. I didn't want her thinking I was some, some hopeless toadstool who sat around eating chili cheese Fritos all day on the couch watching girly movies like Stu Magnolia's and quoting every bit of dialogue and every scene with Julia Roberts, Sally Fields, Olympia Dukakis, Shirley MacLaine, and, and the immutable Dolly Parton. So I signed my letter, 
I signed my letter. All the best, Sean. I wish I'd have had the audacity to be a little more heartfelt than that, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Couldn't bring myself to do it. We wrote back and forth a handful of times, and each time our letters would get just a little bit more, a little bit more personal. She wrote me a funny story about getting lost in Atlanta with her sister, and she rode shotgun in her sister's car, and she was smoking a cigarette. It was her first cigarette. She'd never smoked a cigarette before, and she felt guilty about it for weeks and weeks so that she went to church and asked for forgiveness about this. And it was a funny story. She had an ability to make me laugh. So I wrote her a story. I wrote her a story about when my Uncle John invited me and my friend J.D. to go fishing up at Lake Martin with him. Um, Uncle John had just been to the doctor recently before we got out on that boat to go fish on that pontoon. Everybody together. All the men and all their wives and all their kids. The doctor had said his cholesterol was... was too high and he needed to alter his diet and so my aunt had been feeding him different foods for supper he had been eating pears pear salad pear salad is is an interesting food that a lot of people that are, in a lot of places i've been don't even know what it is i'll tell you what it is pear salad is a half pear from a can and heavy syrup which is dolloped with a third of a cup of Duke's mayonnaise, sprinkled with cheddar cheese, and topped with a maraschino cherry. That's her salad. He would eat whole artichokes, which, which my aunt had steamed. Artichokes, eating artichokes is a whole lot like eating a prickly pear cactus without the needles removed. He would eat bran on his oatmeal for breakfast instead of his normal eggs and bacon. He would take a fiber supplement in between every meal, and he would eat these crackers that were a special blend of oat fiber. He ate fiber at every different meal that he had, per my aunt's instruction. And while we were at Lake Martin, we rented this large pontoon boat. We all piled onto it. We all went out into the water to fish. My uncle stopped at a nice place. There was an island poking from the water with just a few trees. He said, I think this looks like a good place to fish. And we all cast our lines out into the water. It was a lovely day, lovely day. Men my, who were my uncle's friends were there with their wives. And even his, the, these wives were fishing. And my uncle's made a noise because we could all see his pole. His rod was bending toward the surface of the water in a giant circular arc. And his reel began to zip like it was under pressure. And we knew he had a fish. And he screamed. He said, I got one. I got one. While he pulled back on his rod, his, his, his rod bent even further towards the surface, and he was yanking on this fish. We could tell it was a big one. And he was cranking his reel methodically. You could hear the click, 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 click. And he grunted, and he made a moaning noise. <laughs> and my friend J.D. and I learned on that day what happens to a grown man when he eats too much fiber. <laughs> I wrote this to BB. I wrote, and never before had the words poured from my pen with such eloquence and subtle nuance of humor. I was quite proud of myself. She wrote to me 
I think we should send pictures of ourselves to each other. And my heart sank. My heart truly, truly sank because I knew that I was probably nothing compared to what she was. In my mind, she was Ursula Andress, while I was nothing but a little chubby boy with long legs who looked like a man riding a chicken across the front lawn. <laughs> Even so, I didn't want to disappoint her. I got my buddy JD to come over and take pictures of me with a drugstore camera, little little camera he'd gotten from the pharmacy. He was up in my bedroom. He said, hmm, I think you need to dress like an athlete for this one. You know, if you're an athlete, you won't come off as looking so, you know, chubby. So he dressed me in basketball shorts and high-top tennis shoes with a jersey that was a little bit too big for me. And we found a basketball goal for me to pose by. I stood against this basketball goal. He said, no, twist your shoulders facing the camera, but your waist away from the camera. That twist will make you look at least 10 pounds leaner. That's what my mother always says. And so I I faced the camera with this unnaturally feminine pose that was meant to make my waist look a little bit smaller, and I held a basketball beneath my arm for effect. I was hoping that I would come off looking like a well-fed version of Larry Bird. (laughs) Instead, I looked like the spokesperson for Pillsbury. (laughs) He snapped several pictures, and I wrote a letter to B.B. included with these pictures that said, I know I'm not an attractive boy, and I would understand if you weren't very interested in writing me anymore. And I sent it off, and I kind of held my breath. It's, it's, it's a leap of faith to put your whole self out there to somebody and to wait to see how they respond to it. I didn't know what she would, she would write back. About a week later, I got a letter in the mail. It was a thick letter. I walked up the stairs to my bedroom, and I was sick to my stomach about it. I didn't know what I'd get in return. I sat down in the corner, and I closed my eyes. I took a few steadying breaths, and I opened up the letter with my thumb. I pulled out the line notebook pages, and there were pictures that fell upon my desk. And I looked at these photographs. They were glossy five-by-sevens. B.B. looked nothing like what I had imagined. Bibi was tall, taller than all the friends that were pictured with her in her photograph, and she had midnight black skin and long dreadlocks and beautiful brown eyes and a white smile that just penetrated the film itself and infected your soul with happiness. She was beautiful. She was bigger than all her friends, both wider and taller. And she admitted to me in the letter she enclosed with her pictures that she had always felt fat and ugly when she looked into the mirror. And she understood exactly how I felt. And she said at the end of her letter, I think you're a very handsome boy. And if I lived closer to you, I would be proud to have you on my arm. And I wrote a letter back to her. I wrote a letter that said, you're the prettiest girl I've ever seen. 
the prettiest girl I've ever seen, and I would be proud to have you on my arm, too. To tell you the truth, we didn't write each other very much after that. We only wrote a couple more times after that. Because kids get older, life gets busier, schedules start to get out of control. And besides, in the coming years, the internet started to take over the world. And handwritten letters would become a thing of the past. Today, I'm not even sure that younger, younger generations even know what a pen pal truly is. But in my garage, there's a shoebox somewhere, somewhere in the corner, just beside my old bicycle, just beside some fishing gear that I inherited from my grandfather, bamboo fishing rods and MEP spinners, inside an old metal tackle box. There's a shoe box with the word Converse written on the top. And inside this shoe box, there's marble that I received from my Uncle Sam once. There are some letters, handwritten letters, a few from my wife. There's a letter from my father before he passed. And there's a letter in there written in purple ink with all the lowercase eyes that are dotted with little hearts. And in that letter are the words of a stranger named Bibi, who I lost touch with and have no idea where she is. But her words meant something to me. Also in this box are glossy photographs that were developed at the drugstore Glossy photographs which feature in them a 14-year-old underconfident child with red curly hair and long skinny legs who's chubbier than the rest of his friends and he's leaning against a basketball goal with this unnatural look to him that looks like he has been eating too much fiber. It's clear in these photographs that he doesn't think anybody in this world cares about him. It's clear in these photographs also that his mother cuts his hair on the front porch with a pair of dull scissors. <laughs> but you can see it in his eyes. You can see it in his eyes. He just wants somebody to love him. Anyway, I don't know who you are out there in this audience tonight or listening via the radio. I don't know where you are or where life finds you at this exact moment. But words can change a person. The written word or the spoken word. Words are heavy or words are light. Words can make daytime out of the darkest night. Written words or spoken written words are beautiful on a page. The empty becomes full. Sad words. Words that you might not think are true. Anything can be accomplished with loving words. After all, it's what introduced me to you. Signed, your forever friend, Sean Dietrich. Hey, that's all for me tonight. I appreciate you listening very much. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a bona fide pleasure. 
if I do say so myself. Hope you join us next week and the week after that if you ain't got nothing going on. That music here behind me today was Jake and Rebecca Workman, a guitar playing, fiddle playing couple that will blow your mind with their beautiful, touching, and high energy bluegrass music. These guys aren't just good, these guys are rhyming auditorium good. If you don't believe me, go check out their website, jrworkman.com, and you'll find out that Jake was called by Ricky Skaggs to join his band, Kentucky Thunder. Maybe you heard of them in December 2015. While you're there at their site, I hope you check out their album, Deep Into the Heart. Download it, find it on iTunes or any other platform available online, and I promise you won't regret it. Find anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouthShow.com. And there you can find archived episodes dating back to our very first one. While you're there, I hope you take the time to drop me a line because I love to hear from my friends. Tell me about your birthday announcements, wedding announcements, potlucks, church socials, and any other thing you can think of. And I do my best to read it over there because I love to do this sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, if you are lost in this life, just start talking really loud. And maybe someone will find you. Adios.